almost time to start our services this morning. Glad to see every one of you here this morning. I, I know we may have several that are on the road visiting, but we also may have some that are visiting with us, and we're, we're glad that you've chosen to be a part of that this morning to remind you to fill out the friendship register that's in the back of the pew that's in front of you. Our order of worship this morning, Bo Gross will be, will be leading us in song. Our opening prayer, Billy Martin. Scripture reading, Stephen Cooper. Then Ken will bring the lesson of the hour, and announcements will be done by Randy Moore. I'll have one announcement I want to add in case it does not get mentioned at the end of the services. We're thrilled to welcome Jim and Vicki Tomlinson to the Boonville Church family. If you haven't met them, they're right down front here. Their address is in the bulletin in the back. If you haven't taken the time to get to know them, please do that before you leave today. Before we get started in worship this morning, if you would, let's bow in word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come and to worship you in song and praise. Father, we thank you for the many wonderful blessings that you bestow upon each and every one of us. Father, we know that there are several of our number, several of our families here that are going through illnesses, that are going through treatments. Father, we ask that you comfort them as only you can. Be with those that are in charge of their care, that they may nurse them back to their normal health as quickly as possible. Father, we ask you to continue to be with each of us throughout our daily lives that we may live and work and play in a manner that will be pleasing unto thee. Most of all, Father, we thank you for your son Jesus who died on the cross that we might have forgiveness for our sins and an opportunity of home in heaven with thee one day. It's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. One thousand and five, the first song. It's all singing. Oh, beautiful star of Bethlehem, shine afar to
Let's bow as we pray together this morning. Our most gracious and loving Father, we bow in adoration of you, an awesome God, the creator of the heavens and earth, the creator of all life. So thankful for the true gift, Father, of your Son, Lord Jesus, the Prince of Peace, Emmanuel. Father, we're so thankful for this day to see all the smiles and the joy of coming together to worship you this morning, Father, to sing praises to thee, to petition thee in prayer, to partake of, in the communion of the cup, the bread and the cup, Father, that represents the body and blood of your Son, Lord Jesus. Father, we pray for all those who are sick. We want to lift up to you now Brian Rowland, Ray Miller, Jackie Lambert, Ricky Joe Neves, Anthony Moore, Marvin Christian, Sam Haskins, Ann Gardner. So many in tr having treatments right now, so many on the men, Father. We pray your blessings be upon them for, with comfort and strength, Father. We pray for those, Father, who are incarcerated in different institutions, Father. We pray that you will use us as your instruments to reach out to them and tell them we love them. Father, we pray that you'll continue to be with us in our lesson today. Uh, again, Father, we just pray that you'll bless and that we'll glorify you in all that we do. We love you, Father, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Song of Invitation to Proper Time, number 927. Song before our scripture reading this morning, number 291, The Great Physician. If it's convenient for you, please stand as we sing this song. <laughs> the Great Physician now is near, Scripture reading this morning will come from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel.
Good morning, everyone. It is terrific to see you here today. Hey, I have a special guest with my family today. He actually is a month old now. His name is Tracy Cole Forrest, and he's sitting there with my family. And he's just the cutest little fella. So I hope that you'll have an opportunity to go introduce yourself to him and to his little family and just enjoy the preciousness of a little baby. We are thrilled that you're here this morning and we hope that all that we do and the things you participate in are going to be a blessing to you. We are a family here at Boonful. I, I hear that word thrown around a lot and I know what people are suggesting when their ball team refers to themselves as a family or uh, various, e even companies refer to us as families. They say, hey, buy this car, you become part of our family. Okay, peace. You want to do that, that's fine. But I think those of us who are members of the Boonville Church of Christ know that this is a special concept of family. And that is, we're not just a bunch of people that are grouped together because we hold the same ideology or we have similar interests, but we call ourselves a family because we are part of the family of God. We are a people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus and issued into a family that's not just going to enjoy fellowship together now, but anticipates eternity together. If you're from some far off place, we're glad that you can be a part of that today. If you're local and you're visiting with us, we hope that you'll investigate that further and find out more intimately what it is that we mean when we refer to ourselves as a family. Today we're going to look at what I consider the greatest prophecy that was ever made, read in your hearing this morning. In fact, this text tells us that this isn't just another sign, but that the Lord himself had given this sign. That ought to underline the significance of it to a great degree for most of us. And what we believe about this important prophecy says a lot about what we might believe or our relationship with all the other scriptures that we find in our Bibles. Those of you who are local with us know that I don't take this job of presenting God's word lightly. I, I want God to prevail here today. So we're going to pray together and ask God that he will help me, only, only human, uh, full of potential for failure, that God will help me as I present this message today that I'll represent him in the right way, that I'll express what he wanted you to know. And then I'm also going to pray for you 
that your ears will be open to what God has to say. And maybe you've come in to this assembly with some preconceptions. Maybe you're just here to appease somebody who invited you to come, but I hope you'll just lay some of that aside today and just think with us about what God has said, some of the angles to appreciate his word with us today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of this day in particular the first day of the week, an opportunity to assemble with our church family to worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray we're accomplishing that in all these endeavors spiritually. We thank you now for this occasion that we can study your word together. I pray that it will be effective in building us up, of instructing us in your ways, helping us to know you better and to trust you without hesitation. Lord, I pray you'll help me as I've prepared myself for this lesson to not get in the way at all of what it is you want this assembly to know. I pray that despite my own weaknesses and frailties that your word will prevail. And I pray, for Lord, for those who hear this message that even if I am a hindrance in some way that It will not be a stumbling block or something that stands in the way of them grasping your truth. Thank you, Lord, for all that you can and will accomplish through your word here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive a child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her until after the birth of her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, either you believe what we just read together from Matthew 1, 18 to 25, or you don't. Either you believe that that is an actual account of events that are the fulfillment of 
prophecy that was made in the text read earlier from Isaiah 7, 14, some 700 years earlier, either you believe that that's the fulfillment of it or you don't. You somehow think maybe it's a fairy tale. I can't really influence all the things that might have contributed to you believing one thing or another. But I will say this about it. If you do not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, as was prophesied and as the scripture says was fulfilled, if you don't believe that, then honestly, I don't see any reason for you to believe anything else that you find there in the scriptures. Because the birth of Jesus Christ is just the kickoff to many prophecies that are made in the scriptures and which the unfolding text says are also fulfilled in Jesus. So, so if you don't believe the kickoff, then there really isn't any reason for you to believe the rest of it. And maybe, maybe this whole thing is just a waste of your time. But if what is said is true, and I'll just say it right now, I, I believe that it is absolutely true, every single bit of it. If what is said is true, then yes, it is the first in a series of events that are prophesied concerning Jesus Christ that not only talk about his advent, but also the life that he lived and the fulfillment of that life in the ultimate sacrifice that is made of his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, of hanging on the cross, of being buried, and then triumphantly being raised from the dead by the glory of God. Either you believe one or the other. I don't see how that there is any middle ground there. One thing that I have observed, and I'm, I'm not the only one, many scholars point to this fact, and that is that if you examine the scriptures as a whole, you will find that this event and then those that are closely aligned with it, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, all of those encapsulate what is basically the center of attention of all of history. Everything that came before these events were anticipated by prophecy in the Old Testament scriptures. And everything that follows it is looking back to those events and is reinforcing the faith of those who would follow even until this day right here, the very last day of history so far as it has moved forward. The thing is, if, if I reject that thing that stands as the centerpiece of history, then I'm not just rejecting that particular history and its description. I'm rejecting everything that's wrapped up in it, salvation and redemption. So today I want us to examine some points related to this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 and see, see some of the things that might be influential in our 
own lives. I'm just going to tell you, and maybe there's someone here today, I, I don't know, but there are a lot of objections <laughs> to what you find here in this text. A lot of objections. I, I say a lot, really from the standpoint of history. Practically every century that has existed since the introduction, the idea of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Every single century has had someone or somebody's, some philosophy that has peaked up its unnatural head and somehow denied or forsook the testimony that we find right here in these scriptures. And if you are a believer in the truth, as I am, then you might ask, well, what in the world would be the objections? Why would anybody ever deny these truths that are expressed right here on the pages of Scripture? And I'll tell you that for some people, it's just simply the idea of inspiration itself. They just don't believe that the Bible is inspired as it claims to be. And of course, we can go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the obvious thing right here in this text... I assume is the thing that Paul was alluding to. And that is, if I will just take the word of God as being God's word, then look at the changes that it can make in me. If I will just subscribe to its teaching, oh, the difference it will make in me as a person. And sure enough, if we were just looking at the practicality of the word of God, that would be true. But that isn't all that Paul says here in this text. He says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration. Some people have translated that, and it may even be in a translation that you hold in your hands, the idea that the message is God-breathed. And the idea is not that God is inhaling those words. The idea is that God within himself has now exhaled his truth. We studied just a couple of weeks ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we find out that God is comparing spiritual things with spiritual. He has taken a vast, incomprehensible mind of spiritual things and he is funneling it down into words that we can grasp and understand that can transform us into spiritually complete people. And so... God is breathing out those things. So how powerful is God's breath? <laughs> how powerful are his words? Maybe, maybe we take that book there, the Bible, the book of books. Maybe we take it a little bit for granted. I mean, I can read it from cover to cover. I can memorize portions of it. I can have it written on my heart. I, I can take that for granted. It is a limited number of words. I visited a lawyer one time who showed me all the books in his library and said, well, you know, I'm a lawyer. I, I'm responsible for all of these. And, and I, I'm here in your office. I see you've got all these books here. Are you responsible to all those books? And my answer was no. I'm responsible to one of these books, the Word of God. 
What's so significant about it? Thinking back, well, to a primary example of God's expelling words, I immediately go to the very beginning. In fact, let's go to the very of the Bible, the first chapter, the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be, and let's stop right there. You can put an ellipsis that would encompass the rest of the chapter, all six days of creation. What I want us to emphasize here is God breathing over the event that was before him. God said, let it be, and it was. How powerful are the words of God? God's words are so powerful that he can separate darkness from light. God is so powerful that he can raise continents out of the oceans. God is so powerful that he can bring forth the planetary life and the light of the sun and the moon and the stars. He can establish plant life and animal life. He can create human life with words. God said, so here I have in this Bible, God's words captured on a page. God's words that can bring about creation. But the idea is that those words are supposed to create something in me. You've heard Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 in this context, that word has such, a, such an impact, I think, on our understanding of the whole gamut of God's instruction. That passage says that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's Word is not to be, not to be trifled with, it is not something to be played with. It is something to be admired, to receive with admonishment the instruction from the mouth, the very mind of God. It's supposed to change us from the inside out. It is so powerful. And so, someone objecting the inspiration of God? Not me. Not me. I have no objection to the virgin birth on that count. Some object to the virgin birth simply because of miracles themselves. They say, I, you know, I, I just don't, I don't get it. I don't see the evidence of it. I, you know, those are just stories for ignorant people of Jesus' time. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that scripture says, for since the creation the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being witnessed by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Sometimes we say, well, who's they? <laughs> In this text, they are the unbelievers. They are the scoffers. They are the ones who say, you know, I, I kind of don't get it. 
I don't see the evidence of it. God says, open your eyes. If for if in no other way, just experience me with your senses. Look at the creation. For since the very beginning, my invisible attributes are on display. There isn't anybody who with a reasonable thinking mind could come away from a sunrise or a sunset or the birth and the crying of a baby. Just the experiences of life and the definiteness of life, the good things and the bad things. There isn't a person with any kind of sense of understanding at all who, being honest, would deny the existence of a creative, a loving, and a merciful God. In fact, in Psalm 14 and verse 1, that text says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There may be folks who would deny the virgin birth just simply because it's a miracle outright, but that would not be me. I absolutely believe in the truth of the miraculous. Some people say, well, you know what, honestly, I'm kind of a student of time and I study physics and I try to wrap my mind around all of that. And I'm just going to tell you that the problem I really have is in divine predictive prophecy. Not necessarily prophecy itself, if the prophecy is just a revealing of some truth. But when it goes so far as to try to pinpoint events in history, when those things haven't happened yet, or like, like here I am today. You know, this is as far as history has gone. There is no more than this. And so for God to predict something that goes beyond this this moment in time, that, that I just, you know, seriously, I just can't wrap my mind around that. So I, I just, I deny the virgin birth, especially the prophecies concerning it, because how could God have prophesied from Isaiah 7, 14, that's 700 years before Jesus is said to have been born. So I, you know, I don't, I don't get that part. And again, you know, we were talking a moment ago about how we're taking, in the scriptures, we're taking an inestimable knowledge of God and we're funneling it down to something that a human mind can handle. And I say, well, now, where is that part that was going to explain to me divine predictive prophecy? <laughs> I'm going to think that even if it were included, our minds would be blown. So I'm not really going to address that so much as just to, as just to suggest the trust that I have in what God has to say. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Here's the take I want us to draw away with from this text. 
there are a lot of people who will go, for instance, into the book of Isaiah, and every single rock that they can turn over, they turn over and say, here's a prophecy of Jesus. I say, how do you know that? Well, read it. It sounds just like Jesus. But there's nothing in the New Testament that says that's a fulfillment. Uh, well, yeah, whatever, you know, tomato, tomato. But I, I'm just telling you, it sounds like Jesus, so it must be. I, I, I'm, I'm not signing on to that. Just because something sounds like it doesn't necessarily make it so. But I do sign on to the idea that if God says that's what that is, then that's what that is. So what did God say about Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14? You read it with me this morning from Matthew chapter 1. God says, that is this. <laughs> you know that prophecy right there? That's this. The one that I'm telling you to call Jesus the Savior of men, He is also the one that I was talking about 700 years ago. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the whole clincher. This Jesus that you're naming the Savior, He is God with us. I don't think there's any misunderstanding that. There's a lot about divine predictive prophecy. Peace, I don't know. I just have to say, big question mark there, but with this? I don't have any questions about that. Now, I'd say that none of these things deter my mind and my heart from believing that Jesus was born of a virgin. None of those objections. Because I do believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures. I do believe in the miracle of the virgin birth. I do believe in God's divine predictive prophecy. So, Ken, you were talking earlier about how all this stuff is kind of connected. What is it that the Old Testament might have to say about the virgin birth? Well, let's go way back, okay? Let's go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Now, here's the setting. God's already created everything, and man and woman are in the garden. They're tending to it. Everything's idyllic until Satan deceives Eve. Now they've partaken of the fruit. Their eyes are opened to knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. And they are being judged by God in this moment. And God has turned His attention to the serpent, to Satan himself. And God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And then this part, between your seed and her seed. Now, God had already made the point that life follows after life. That the seed of a plant, when planted, would always produce after its kind. The concept of seed had already been established. And given that this is a document written after the events by the pen of Moses, by inspiration of God, God breathing this message. I take special import and understanding, emphasis on the idea that the woman would have seed because that is just such a foreign concept in the Scriptures. In fact, it is a foreign concept 
in nature itself. You follow through the scriptures, particularly like passages here in the book of Genesis where there are a lot of genealogies, and we joke about this oftentimes. We talk about so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. Boy, there's just a lot of begots in there, a lot of begets. Okay, yeah, you're, you're right. But implied in those genealogies is the passing of seed from one generation to another generation. Specifically, seed was being passed from male to male, generation to generation. Life vested in seed, generation to generation to generation. The concept was seed is passed through the males. And so this idea here that's introduced that it's so foreign and so unnatural, the seed of woman Is that a misprint or something? What in the world? In order to talk about this Old Testament passage, I want to look look how Matthew, again, Matthew chapter 1, unfolds this story, and, and he does the same thing. He gives a genealogy right off the bat. So he introduces Jesus, of course, who is the son of David, the son of... He chooses Abraham, the father of the faithful. He's going to start the genealogy from Abraham. And it goes as you would expect it, as it always did in the Old Testament scriptures. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, etc., etc. Notice, begot. One seed to the next generation of seed. Seed to seed to seed. Uh, Well, good example here. Verse 3. Right there he's talking about Judah. And he says, okay, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, so Tamar, the woman, is the vessel of the seed. But what seed? Well, Judah's seed, human seed. She is the vessel of human seed. Seed to seed. So it goes from Judah to Perez. He would be the one in line. And then it kicks off again and it goes steady until you get to verse 5. And then there you've got Salmon who begets Boaz, and he does that by the harlot of Nineveh, Rahab, a Gentile. But I want you to notice, Salmon, he begets a son by her meaning she's the vessel of the seed. What seed? The human seed. Human to human, male to male. Now we're going through Boaz. Next statement right there in the same verse. Boaz begets Obed by Ruth. She's the vessel, but we're still going seed to seed, generation to generation, male to male. In verse 5, You'll see I'm emphasizing the women that are mentioned in this text. In verse 5, you've got David who begets Solomon uh, by her who was the wife of Uriah. Well, you know who that was. That was Bathsheba. But again, I want to emphasize Bathsheba is the vessel of the seed. The seed is going male to male, though, in this text, David to Solomon. And then we'll take off again from Solomon for a long time. In fact, it is the same story. Yeah, there were some women mentioned there, but the seed that they carry is not their own. The seed that they carry is the seed of their husband. And then he begat seed and carried on the genealogy. 
until verse 16. The only time in all of the genealogies of any genealogy ever made in the history of mankind is verse 16. The only variation ever in the history of this world. So there we go, verse 16. Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Wait a minute. Hold on there a second. Shouldn't that have said, okay, so Jacob beget Joseph. Joseph beget Jesus by Mary. Shouldn't it have said that? Well, if it had been like all the rest... Sure, that makes sense because there was plenty of precedent for it right here in this text. But it isn't stated that way. And why is that? Because Mary did not hold the seed of man. She did not hold Joseph's seed. She held the seed of God Almighty, her own seed. Now, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one seed, and to your seed, who is, well, guess who? Christ. Jesus Christ, the seed of woman. Prophecy made about that way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Right there, that other text that we were looking at a moment ago, our key text, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Isaiah was speaking this prophecy to Ahaz, who was king of Judah. Oh, there's a lot of intrigue going. Israel and Syria are getting together and they're trying to defeat Judah. And Judah is aligning itself with Assyria. Assyria is ultimately just going to come and wipe out Israel and Syria. But Isaiah is coming to Ahaz and he is saying, trust the Lord. The Lord will deliver you. God will be with us. Well, you know how that story went. Ultimately, there was trust in the foreign nations. They turned their back on God in order to trust something that was tangible instead of putting their full faith in God Almighty. And even those kings that rose up and said, we're going back to God, were short-lived. They were ineffective. Here is God saying, I am going to deliver my people no matter what, no matter what. Now, this little deal with the Assyrians, or this little coming deal 150 years later with Babylon, that is just a little blip in the radar of the moving will of God. I am going to bless my people. And I might say, we could just put this in parentheses if we want to, God effectively saying, if it takes 700 years... I am going to accomplish my will. And I am going to be among you. Among us through his only begotten son. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. 
When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When does God act? God always acts when it is exactly the right time to act. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Oh, that's a small little town. Nobody really takes any thought of it. It's just little. But he says, out of that will come the one who is going to be the ruler in Israel. His goings and comings forth are of old from everlasting. Who is that one, that ruler in Israel? I tell you, it is the one from everlasting to everlasting. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. I am He who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Boy, the Old Testament just has a lot to say. A lot more to say. What then would the New Testament have to say about any of that? You know, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus a lot of times was very tactful and he would play mind games with folks and he would help them to come to a realization about who he was. It was a painstaking process. But there was one time when Jesus just came out with it. John chapter 8 and verse 58. He says, before Abraham was... I am. Whoa, back up. Now they'd already caught his insinuation of being around before Abraham had lived. They're like, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old. How in the world can you say that you knew Abraham? Boy, when he said he was, I am the almighty God who is and was and is to come. When he said, I am, those Pharisees took up stones and they wanted to stone him to death. Why? Because they considered that he had blasphemed God by calling himself God. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, right there in the midst of the creative passages, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Us, our, our in fact, the word that is used in this whole first chapter for God is the plural word Elohim. Why plural? When in the second chapter, he not only uses that word, but also the word Yahweh, which is the God, the one God of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That, that's who that is, Yahweh. Well, why was he calling himself God, plural, there? Well, because he is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 1, when John introduces us to Jesus, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything that was made. Where was Jesus in the beginning? God said. God said. The Word 
of God. That powerful, creative word of God. Jesus. He's called Son of God. Mark seems to just, I don't know, I I don't mean for this to be disrespectful in any way, but it seems like Mark, as he's writing by inspiration of God, just kind of of has a hobby uh, with Jesus. He's constantly referring to him as the Son of God. In fact, in the very first verse of the book, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then a few verses later, verse 11, it is God who testifies to the fact, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 29, it is Peter who confesses, you are the Christ. In chapter 14, verses 61 and 62, he is standing before the high priest. Are you the Christ chosen of God? Jesus says, verse 62, I am. In chapter 15, verse 39, following following his death, the centurion said, truly this man was the Son of God. Typically, we want to hear testimony of people we trust, and those are great ones. You know, there are even some here in this text that we might not otherwise trust. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 11, every time Jesus came across some demons, you know what they did. They called out to Jesus as the Son of God. They knew exactly who He was. Jesus said, don't do that. Okay? It happens again, chapter 5 and verse 7, when He has His tangle with legion, we are many. They beg Him by calling Him Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. That's what the New Testament testifies to. What's his relationship with the Father? John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The only one of His kind. Totally unique. Why is He so unique? Because He's not just in the flesh human. He is God. When Paul talks about Jesus, the Son of God, well, he tells the whole story in short form. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says... Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, 
justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Such is the testimony and so much more of the New Testament Scriptures. So, I was asking, what's the significance of all that? So what? What should that mean to me? It seems to me that those points that we've lightly touched here this morning all contribute to revealing some things to us about God. That through Jesus having been born of a virgin, we learn that God keeps His promises. God established this particular promise from the very beginning. And He saw through the progress of time and many, many generations of people the rise and the fall of his own people and their faithfulness, God protected his promises and saw to it that his son was born at just the right time by a virgin carrying the Spirit of God himself conceived by the Holy Spirit. We also learn that God is so, so powerful. God could speak the world into existence, but do you see how through time, by means of the prophets, and then ultimately by His own Son, He parsed out words that ultimately would bring about the salvation of all people if they would humble themselves to Him and obey the gospel. And then I also learned by this virgin birth about the providence of God. Providence literally is defined as foreseeing care. Foreseeing care. Boy, I take confidence in that. What that says to me is God doesn't just drop everything He's doing and say, oh, wait a second. I should do this right now. And then we say, oh, God took care of me. I appreciate God's providence. That is not what that means. What that means is I have finally, whatever the circumstance, I don't know what your circumstance is, how dire it is. Maybe it's just, maybe it's positive. Maybe it's one of those life-changing good things. But when we come to those forks in the road, it is not like, okay, Lord, uh, I know you've been busy with this other stuff that's the big picture. Now I've got this right here. Would you kind of stop now and pay attention to that? That is not how God's providence works. Providence is foreseeing care. This fork in the road has been in the mind of God from the very beginning. Now I'm here. Am I going to trust God or not? If I trust God, guess what? He's already been there. He's already been through this. I've got you. If I choose to turn my back on God, I'm creating a new path. I am separating myself from God's providence. Trust in God's foreseeing care. Ken, is that biblical? (laughs) Romans 8 verse 28. All things 
work together for good to those who love the Lord, to those who are the called, listen, the called according to his purpose. Are you fitting your life within the purposes? Why are things constantly going wrong with me? Maybe it's because I'm not faithful to God. Maybe it's because I'm not submitting myself to his will. If I were submitting myself to his will, I would be wrapped up in his foreseeing care. I learned that about God in his unfolding plan in bringing Jesus to save us. Here's what I know. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. He was that, and he still is that, and especially so for those who know him, who obey him, who submit to him. I'm wondering if that's where you are. You've submitted to him, but... It's been a long road and there have been a lot of ups and downs. I'm in the down part right now. Can we pray about it? Can we think, can we think about aligning ourselves again with the will of God and to enjoy that providence of God? We'll pray and he'll hear. Maybe you're not a child of God today. Today gives you an opportunity to take advantage of all that God has done through history to save you from your sins. Oh, it began with the virgin birth, but it was consummated in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, that can liberate your soul in your obedience to the gospel. Have your sins washed away. Is there anybody who needs to respond today? Now is your opportunity. Why don't you come if you need to while we stand together and sing.
prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper, number 382. Why did my Savior come to earth? Take in the Lord's Supper as we do every week. If you need an emblem, Ben or Anderson will give you one. Just raise your hand. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come together at this time so humbly and so gratefully. For it is at this time we remember your son who, while here, his decisions were made for us, the places he went for us, the words he said were for us. The thoughts in his head were for us. His emotions were for us. And Father, ultimately, he died for us. And Father, we will always remember this every day, for it is why we are what we are and where we will go forever. And we're so grateful for your son, Father. And at this time, we eat of this bread, which represents his body. 
commanded. It is in your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let us pray. Father, as we prepare to drink of the fruit of the vine, we know that it represents Jesus' blood, the blood that was shed up on that cross, the blood that he did not have to shed, the blood that none of us deserves to have shed for us. Father, we are so grateful and will always remember and let this guide our lives through eternity. And in your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we come to this part of, of our services, uh, I pray that we remember all of our blessings come from, come from God. We'll sing one verse of all to Jesus I surrender. All to Jesus and praising God, another thing that we need to call to remembrance is the fact that not only has he given us all spiritual blessings, but he has also given us all material blessings as well. Each and everything that we have is because of him and what he has done for us. And as we meditate up on that, we should recognize that in contrast to all that God has done for us, what we are about to do is the least that we can do for him, and that is to give something back so that we can continue on the work and the mission of the church, and as we 
do that, let us think upon, as Paul encouraged the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 to give cheerfully, liberally, or with generosity, and as he says as well, not grudgingly. And so let us do it because we want to, but not rather than out of a sense of obligation. And so with that thought in mind, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for all things that you have given us. We thank you for our material blessings. And as we think upon those, help us to keep those things in the proper perspective. Help us to remember that you give us all things. And may all that is has been or is about to be given, be given in the right heart with the spirit of generosity and of willingness and so that we may continue on your work and may it be pleasing unto you and for this we ask and in Christ's name amen Good morning and welcome to the Sunday morning services here at the Boonville Church of Christ. On this beautiful Sunday morning, December the 24th, 2023, we had 308 in services this morning. I have a card to Boonville Church of Christ. Thanks for the fruit basket and a special thank you to Todd and Michelle for bringing it to us. We love you all, Sonny and Wynell Thompson. Remember, this is the end of services for today. We won't have a 5 p.m. service this afternoon. And that's all the announcements I have. Would you please stand for our closing prayer? <clears throat> our dear, most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do once again thank you for this day and the many blessings of life you bestow on us each and every day. Lord, we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world. Forgive us, Lord, wherein we have sinned against you. For this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.